0: You are in the right place. This is Being Well, according to Dan and Brian, the world's premier health and wellness podcast, according to us. I'm Dan Scooter Shuffleton, but more importantly, let me introduce you to the hilarious half of this podcast. He is an accomplished rake fighting champion. And inventor of the modern day toothpick, Brian Hotfoot Thompson. How you doing today, Hotfoot?
1: Ah, uh, Dan. These names they uh, they get better and better. I mean, I and and I, I like
0: the last one, but Hotfoot is it's going to have to grow on me. I'm receiving a lot of tweets on our Twitter feed. Uh, our audience wants to know how did you get the name Hotfoot? I didn't know we had a Twitter feed. That's kind of cool. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, uh, it it comes from uh, modern day uh, aerobics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm just that good. I, I, no, I don't know. I can't make it up. I don't know. Well,
0: excellent. I am. I'm. I'm really excited to to watch your aerobics videos on YouTube. Yeah. If I need to subscribe to your channel so I can get in better shape.
1: Yeah, you know it's. <laughs> It's a different take on aerobics. It's a different take. Uh, a lot of it involves uh, sitting on the couch.
0: Mm, mm, yes, yes. I've, I tried that in my 20s. It didn't work out for me, but you know, yeah. it could have been my nutrition. It could have been. It could have been. been. Who's to say? It could have been. Well, Hotfoot, we have, a <laughs> we have a super guest on our show today. She's an evangelist of the human experience and status quo disruptor. Please welcome VP of Thought Leadership and Brand Marketing, Eliza Garn. Hi. Oh, I am. Pl- I, I I messed that up. Elisa Garn. Hi, Elisa. I'm. Hi, so Dan. Sorry. I'm
2: going to need you to do that entire introduction all over again. You yeah, ruined I, her that, name,
1: Dan. You had one job. <laughs> I
0: know. I actually. I well,
2: halfway through that
0: sentence, I realized I didn't put her company in there. Uh, well, that's okay. So, I'll,
2: I'll tell it. Hey, you know, it's probably better. Us. It's it's better coming from my mouth than yours anyway. <laughs> benefits the premier benefit brokerage for employees and the like across the country. And I also just wanted to say, I know that the emphasis was on the hot foot thing, but Brian, I'm gonna contest the invention of the toothpick. I think I have a claim on that. So I'd like to see your patents to prove that you actually hold that title.
1: Listen, okay. (laughs) When,
2: when Are you mansplaining it, to me? Don't you dare mansplain to let me. me. <laughs> let me
1: mansplain to you exactly what we're talking about now. Um, the toothpick thing is interesting because um, I don't have a patent.
2: Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Um, Keep going.
1: But I did invent it the same week that I invented uh, the gear and the wheel.
0: Mm. Now, uh, it is the modern day toothpick. So I think I know some mm. inside information. Uh, what hotfoot did is he invented a toothpick made out of cedar so it tastes delicious uh as you're you know picking your teeth with it that's uh-huh. what well it and, and we did
1: the jelly bean thing where like you can get toothpicks that taste like burps and like you know, just <laughs> one stuff. end one Black end is licorice. a delight
2: and one end is a surprise yeah so you have to like <laughs>
1: pick the ends carefully yeah that, I mean This is great. I'm writing this down. I know
2: it's great. That's why I hold the patent on it. And don't you dare try to steal more of my ideas.
1: Hey, you'll be hearing from my
0: attorneys. (laughs) This is, this is, this podcast taking a weird turn. This is
1: great. I'm so done with this. I'm 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 done with this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really happy to be here with you guys. Obviously we're, we're all very serious about um, everything in life. The most important thing specifically. So thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely, thank you for entertaining us and being on. Who knows what's going to happen?
1: I just, uh, I just can't believe that she actually. Well, she agreed to it not knowing what she was getting herself into. She showed up and everything. I know. This is way.
0: This has gone way better than any of my dates in life so far. So the, <laughs> the other party shows up, so that's great.
2: I know, especially in a COVID world, right? Like you have total autonomy to just not show up for anything, and if anybody <laughs> called you on you, like. I had open. a fever am i right
1: <laughs> i had a fever of 99.9 9. i might have rubbed my I'll forehead it, really I, hard
2: yeah. i have used that excuse once or twice to get out of meetings this year i'm not i'm not proud of it but uh it is what it is
1: no well i i, I did say earlier this was a judge zone but well for you it's a judge free
0: zone <laughs> i'm fine with that um <laughs> Elisa, first things first, let's jump right in. You know what I want to know being, you know, granted, I'm a two bit floor flooring sales guy. Brian's two and a half bit. He's a step three to me. Three.
2: three bit.
0: You've gone up <laughs> since the last podcast. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Elisa, tell us about HR and like the different types of HR people. What does like, what does a person need to know about HR that the common person doesn't know?
2: Oh man. Well, I think the biggest misconception about the profession in general is that we're all walking Toby Flenderson's. Um man, that show absolutely put <laughs> the nail in the coffin for HR. Um but there's a reason it was so funny. It's because it's true. Like that is very much how HR tends to show up inside businesses. Um and if you don't know what I'm referencing, it is getting a bit outdated now. It's a classic, mind you. But it's on Netflix. The character from The Office.
1: Yeah, it's um, on Netflix. Go watch it.
2: I know, but it's gonna it's, yeah. it's ending soon. They're dropping no. The Office, so I know bad news. Bad news. Get it on DVD or you know streaming service. I guess. What's like a I'm DVD? dating myself already. This is when you get to that age in life where you start saying things and you're like, oh, I just alienated everyone under the age of thirty. <laughs> All right. Anyway, but I digress. <laughs> so, HR is a really interesting part of business. I think um, most people in the profession don't like, you know, go to career day in third grade and hear from somebody, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I can't wait to do HR inside a company one day. I can't wait to write people up and." fire people and do performance reviews. That sounds so sexy. That's not really what are on most people's minds when they start working, but the profession itself, just like the way of the modern HR career professional, the profession starting back in the 1920s with the labor market and having to have somebody in there to make sure the companies didn't kill people um, has been pretty reactive. You know, it's, it's a lot of protection. It has to do with compliance. Um, but there's this new progressive movement that's happening inside businesses where they're starting to have these shockingly aha moments that, oh my gosh, people matter. You know, like when they show up, there's there's more to them than just the production that they're putting out. They're a whole person. So in human experience, we visualize this with an iceberg. Now, typically when we hire someone or interview someone or bring someone to our offices, look at the top of the iceberg stuff we want them to bring their skills and their knowledge and their abilities um and then of course we focus on the things we can see which if you want to get into the diversity equity inclusion space is like race you know skin tone those type of things but that whole under part of that iceberg is what's coming along with those people every single day and that's the stuff that as companies historically we don't want people to talk about it's uncomfortable it's, you know, it's disruptive. We might not understand it. It seems like it's it's um, it's a barrier to getting work done, distraction, but that's honestly what makes humans human. So if we're asking people to eliminate that, we're only getting 10% of them of what they're bringing in with their iceberg. So, uh, sorry if you hear that in the background, that is my dogs letting me know that they need to go out. Don't worry, I've got it handled, but if you hear that little that's doorbell.
1: Impressive. I know. I trained my dog
2: to ring the doorbell. How cool is that? (laughs) Thanks, COVID.
1: Yeah. No, that's awesome. (laughs) I need to do that with my kids.
2: I know, right? Yeah, it's true. Just ring the bell when you need to go, especially toddlers. Um, But you asked about the different personality types of HR, and this is something that I have become much more passionate about in the last couple of years, because what I've noticed is the C-suite and arguably the rest of the company that doesn't do HR doesn't know how to talk to HR people in their own language because man, there's one thing we love. It's the alphabet soup of employment law. And like we have a, we have an acronym for everything. Absolutely everything. I mean, HR itself is an acronym. Um, So I built out these personas to help create shared languages for people to, to better connect with the expectation that they see from their HR department. So first one is a traffic cop, traffic cop, HR people, are very reactive. They like to stand in the middle of the drama in the intersection, blow their whistle, tell people which direction to go. But ultimately, the value that they bring is keeping people safe. They find a lot of personal vested value in making sure that everyone is protected, and that is critically important inside a business, especially if you're talking about manufacturing or something production based where, you know, people could get killed if those things aren't in practice. But because they're so busy reacting to their environment, they don't have the ability or time or even attention span to open up and be more strategic and look at things big picture. So that's where city planner HR people come in. City Planner HR people are usually like the CFOs that happen to also have HR responsibilities, or maybe they are strategic HR business partners. They're people that are very good at breaking things apart and seeing infrastructure, you know, where do we need to build the next plumbing system where do we need to widen the roads where are we planning to grow so they're very good at connecting the needs and the goals and the aspirations of the city or the company but they're not necessarily connected to what's happening at the base level they're not out with the people they don't really understand culturally they don't have that pulse of of the day-to-day then the third persona that I built out is what's called the mayor and mayor HR people I don't like to say that I have favorites but I do every chance I get I am a mayor HR person. Um, So of course, you know, my bias, that's the one that I, (laughs) I resonate toward most. But these are people who are PR minded, they understand the importance of employer branding, they like to be out and kissing baby, shaking hands, and hear what the constituents are saying. And by the way, I'm talking about like, wholesome politics not actual politics so let's just pretend in the scenario that this mayor is uh <laughs>
1: we're not talking about the actual office show here no we're... no no no
2: um okay. but these these are individuals who are very capable of understanding what's happening with the traffic cops you know they're listening to them they're talking to them they're having meetings with them to understand you know where are these where are we having crashes? Who's not following the, the law? You know, who's <laughs> who's been sitting in the jail for six weeks? But they can also sit in those city planner meetings with the executives and talk the talk to be able to represent the needs of those constituents or employees in the case of the analogy. So, all of these are really really important inside a company and some of them are more effective at different times of a company's life cycle but expecting like if a ceo is expecting hr quote unquote to be able to do all of these and execute them exceptionally well as one person not only is that unfair but that's impossible you can't have somebody that is excellent at all three of those skill sets because they're so varied, as well as having the time and capacity to be able to manage the workload of all three of those. So when we talk about like, well, you know, what is HR and what should people know about it? When you look at your experience with HR, maybe you've had a varied combination of those or maybe it's just been one, um, but it is such a broad profession in the way that it's becoming impactful for the future is not what it was even a decade ago it's so adaptive to you know trying to focus more on like i said this human experience element of um protecting and valuing the individuals that come into our workplace and celebrating them instead of uh i don't know data dumbing them or like turning them into numbers that's just not it's not the way of the future everything in our world is personalized now and work is becoming synonymous with that rant yeah. over I'm stepping off my soapbox
1: yeah I was gonna say it's getting pretty tall no I'm kidding <laughs> I'm kidding
2: it is no it
1: is. you know what you need and, a ladder to get down because I you know from being in, in in sales and you know we do see that and I know Dan would agree that over the years I've had HR people that were really great you know they they were engaged they would call you up when you're at a sales meeting they would just sit and talk to you and see what's going on with you and then you do have the ones that treat you like a number, right? And check in a box, and and you definitely see that. Um, no, that's crazy. That's that's a that's a that's a very very simple way to look at it. Uh, I'm well, sure. Well, I don't know
2: if it's simple, invented,
1: but I'm sure you came up with that somewhere sense. around the time that you stole my idea for the toothpick. <laughs>
0: I think it's, I think it's a great way for everybody, even a two bit flooring sales guy to like understand, like that made a lot of sense to me. And I could, I can pinpoint the different HR people in my career, like, oh, that person's a traffic cop. Oh, that person's a city planner. I don't think I've had too many mayors, but you know, I don't really, I try to avoid HR because you know, all the, all the shady dealings. As you should. That's That's the thing.
2: I know, I know it is a joke, but it's funny because it's true as they say, the old adage. Um, but that's what you know, it's hard fighting a stigma. Um, and quite frankly, I have to give full disclosure. I am no longer. you mentioned my title, which is you know, about as long as Moby Dick. but <laughs> I don't want to be an HR practitioner anymore because I am tired, honestly, of fighting the battle inside one company, of fighting for that viability and credibility that our profession is working so hard to get to. And we have made progress, but it's very, very rare when you have an HR department that has true credibility and respect at, at the same you know synonymous level as like a CFO or a CMO or a COO, uh, because our world is so gray, people are gray. It's not a black and white part of the business where you can put people into buckets and say, this is how this is. This is how it should be expected to operate. And then you know, do testing and piloting, and then iterate and get it right, and then move on with your day. Like it's never a checked box. People are not boxes to check. So it's very, very difficult to find compelling data to be able to support, as other elements of the business do, that still maintains the integrity of the individual and the person and the human element there. Um, so you know, we've gotten better in HR. Like we now have data that we can show like time to hire and quality of hire and we can look at certain measurements that at least give us some credibility and some ability to forecast people um but people are freaking unpredictable man like i am one of them (laughs) i i go into a business and what i feel and think today could look very different in six months based on all of the stimuli that happened to me in my life and trying to do that at scale when you're responsible for Um, tens of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people is exceptionally challenging. Um, So in my opinion, I think it's one of the most noble professions out there. And people can argue to death with me on that because there's no other profession that has this level of impact on the human life element than HR. We make decisions that impact people's benefits, which impacts their families, which impacts their stability and their, their compensation, their quality of life, all the way into the stress that comes along with all of that and the satisfaction. So, you know, when you ripple it out, essentially HR's responsibility is to make better workplaces for a better world.
0: Also, you have to have a different game plan, a different method for each individual person. Cause there's so many different personalities with different problems, things like that. Like you have to just think on the fly all the time.
2: Oh, true. Well, I mean, Dan, there's no way that I could like implement one policy for you that I could equally implement for Brian, because the two of you are so fundamentally different than each other. I,
1: I personally am offended. I, I thought you Dan and be. I were almost identical,
0: um, outside of the hair.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I will never live up to your hair, Dan, but I, I, I gotta say, you know, it's interesting. I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, this, you know, this conversation and why we're having it with you, obviously. I mean, why are two flooring guys having a conversation with an HR disruptor? Um, And it's, it's interesting because you made a comment about, you know, you're impacting humans, right? And that's really what the well building standard is all about. What Dan and I are very passionate about is, is the impact that this environment has on humans and it's interesting that HR oftentimes gets overlooked in how much that aspect of a building environment can impact them, right? It's not just having, I mean, you can have the healthiest building known to man, and if you don't have the right HR practices that are taking care of them, you know, from a a economic standpoint, from a health benefit standpoint, from all those other things that HR does, you know, what's the point? So that's very interesting. And the other thing that I thought of was I wonder how often the HR personalities that are hired are impacted by whoever's hiring them, right? I mean, have you noticed like maybe it's a CEO or CFO who's hiring the HR um, uh, manager or vice president or whatever? Do you feel like their personalities sometimes align, which causes them to be a certain way? Or do you think it's different than that?
2: Uh, Sometimes. I mean, again, we're human and as humans, that brings in bias. So anytime you're hiring, it has an opportunity to inject whether conscious or subconsciously.
1: Unconsciously.
2: Yeah. Uh, Easy for me to say.
1: I've done Um, that training, unconscious bias training.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So CEO, first of all, again, I'm not going to go complete soapbox because there's other things I want to talk about that are more important, but In my opinion, if you don't have your people operations or your HR function reporting directly to the CEO, the key decision maker, the person responsible for executing and casting vision, you have missed the mark. Because if you have it reporting to any other part of the business, you've created a barrier for that CEO to disconnect from the people who are executing the work within your company. And as soon as you do that, You have essentially cut off a limb and paralyzed or at least, you know, um, what's a better word for it? It's not paralyzed, but impeded your ability to be able to operate at full performance because you're not going to be aware of or have a sampling of that human element of your business represented in in key decision-making strategies. Well, that layer
1: is going to provide the opportunity for sugarcoating. Let's just be honest. I don't know if it's sugarcoating
2: or even if it's just... Like lack of care, right? Because it, yeah. is, it, it can be super distracting and hard to focus on fixing a culture or, you know, like if you have brand repair to do internally or if people are disgruntled or unmotivated. Um, I don't know. I've, I've been listening to Good to Great again on tape because it's been a good decade since I've listened to it or read it. Uh, and man, the fundamentals in that still ring true like spend the time to get the right people on the bus first, and you're not going to have to manage performance. But if what you're doing is you're just trying to get butts and seats to get stuff done, then you're not going to prioritize the right people. And then you're going to have the aftermath effect of trying to manage performance and how to motivate them and how to get them to engage because you don't have the right people to begin with. Um, So I I don't know if that totally answers your question. Because again, I know it was a little bit of a Sidebar there, so maybe if I didn't answer it, you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to ask
0: it again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, you know what? Though I did. Okay, sorry, I just told you to ask me a question, but you brought up a good point that I think is interesting. In the world of what you guys do, it's not very often that HR is thought of or HR thinks about the impact of what you guys do for a profession or. Um, For example, my company right now is building a new building. So we've been in the same building for, I don't even know, 20 years, give or take. Um, Very, very outdated, you know, just kind of the brown cubicle walls. Um, It's not a bad environment, but you walk into it and you definitely have a sense of, okay, this this, this was the thing two decades ago. Now it's not. So as we're building this new building, we have a COO who is very involved in the people element of our business, the way that our company is structured because we don't have traditional HR at our company. Um, So when she's in there making some of these decisions, for example, she asked for my opinion on one of these things. Uh, She was looking at flooring samples, specifically the flooring Like I think they wanted to do concrete floors because they're all the rage and whatever. Okay, so she asks my opinion. She shows me the samples and I'm looking at it and I'm like, well, I wear a lot of heels And I know that that's going to be super echoey and uncomfortable and you have all of this open floor space in these areas and my heels, just one person clicking along, that's going to be super distracting. (laughs) So it's just a silly little, like I was actually just trying to be funny, but she took it very seriously. She said, that's a good point. I didn't even think of something like that. So now, you know, she's gone back to whatever company she's working with, which um, I'm sorry to say is obviously not you guys, but you never know what the future holds, right? It's all about relationships. Um, but now that she's going back to this company, saying we need to figure out a way to build this in a way that is actually going to think about how our guests, our clients, our prospects, our vendors, people that are coming in, we need it to be more than just showy and beautiful, and you know have a landscape to admire. This needs to be functional. We need to think about the human experience as it relates to what does this space provide for people that are going to be in it, whether it's a one-time, one-hour meeting or whether it's come in on a daily basis and keep people engaged, feeling comfortable and happy.
1: You're speaking our language. I mean, that's.
2: finally.
0: If it were politically correct, and we were in the same room. I would hug you right now because Aww. I, I love function. That's why I have a minivan, not because I'm trying to be cool because I'm a suburban dad and I need Aww, to pack st- kids in those
2: seats, baby all now, the way
0: function. Why don't people design for beauty and function? Like I don't understand that. Yeah.
1: It's, it is so tough because there is a, an idea behind, you know, how awesome could this look versus how well will this perform? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I oftentimes will tell designers that, you know, it, it matters more what this is going to look like in five years than what it looks like on your table, because it is important. You know, it's, it's important to think about those things. And and like you said, it it wasn't difficult for her to ask for some engagement from her staff on, Hey, what do you think about this? And very quickly you were able to identify hey that might not be the best solution and kind of open her eyes to, you know, some other opportunities to, to improve that. But no, I
2: firstly, so hold on. I've got an example on the other side, because I think this one's actually a fun one to talk about. Um, I was the HR executive at this company and got hired in the midst of a build out. So I don't think it was intentional that I was excluded from the conversation. It just was already moving. Um, but we had, we'd outgrown our space. So we made the decision as a company to purchase some, um, some space that was across the parking lot, you know, it it was close, but it wasn't within the building. So we bought out this floor and completely gutted it, redesigned it and did all the things that we were told in forbes and ink and every other magazine that said open floor space was all the rage so we had low profile cubicles everything was white you know we had pops of color with the chairs um kind of that open industrial ceilings they were like 20 foot ceilings so they're super high and then we had glass conference rooms little pod rooms that people could go into Well, what I didn't tell you is this space was being out for our entire technology team, the entire team. So, you know, you have a very echoey space. It's again, it's beautiful. Everything's new, Um, they were required, everybody had to get Macs because they were going to be working off of Macs for the programmers, but they also had IT technicians and support teams who the entire, the rest of the company worked on PCs. So now you have tech support, Working off of Macs, trying to support people that work on PC, um, I'll I'll you know I'll tackle this to the end. So basically, what happened is we had people that were so mad about this that they actually quit their jobs because they were frustrated. They couldn't focus. They couldn't. They weren't productive. They weren't getting things done that they wanted to do. So they ended up leaving the company for the work environment. And I don't think that that is often brought up consciously in exit meetings but it absolutely does happen and is a really, really negative impact on this this employee and human experience. Elisa, I heard a stat
0: that it costs a company over a hundred grand when someone leaves the company in lost productivity, um, you know, taking their work, putting it on someone else for the time being, recruiting, hiring someone, getting them up to speed to be like working on their own as much that person. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Or, you know, is that is that is that estimate right? Over a hundred grand when someone leaves?
2: I think it does depend on the source that you're quoting, and it also depends upon the position and the value that you know, like what they actually do at the company. Um, but. Just, just the cost of turnover. So excluding any of the impact of lost time, lost productivity, just the cost for recruiting team to go out, source, hire, and backfill a position usually is between about four and $6,000. But then when you start getting into, this is one of those, I earlier I mentioned, mentioned HR finally has metrics. This is one of those ones we get all excited about because we can actually start tracking this. Um, but you start looking at, okay, well, what was the loss of productivity? What could we have done if that position was filled? What's the time to get this person up and running and operational where they've onboarded and they're acclimated and they can do the work independently. Um, And so again, like that just continues to rise and rise and rise up the ranks as you start comparing your entry level employees that, you know, maybe the number is closer to 10 to 15,000 up to your directors, VPs and executive level. That is major disruption inside an organization because it has an impact on your vendor Relationships as well, and your trust in the company and your employer brand. So, it's some of those things are harder to quantify, especially if you don't have uh, the right metrics to be able to analyze that. Um, But it's, I think that the three of us could absolutely agree it's expensive, it's expensive, and it's distracting.
0: Yeah. And I think it's one of those expenses that, you know, unless you have the metrics, you don't know
2: how much it's costing your company. Right. Right. Unless you have, you know, good HR.
1: Yeah, unless you have good HR. And I would imagine that when you le- lose somebody that's in a more senior level, the impact is bigger because you're also going to lose people that are working under him or her, uh, because that's pretty common, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's it, there's there's been a lot of studies. Um, Gallup did one mo- most recently talking about the power of the manager. Um, and for me, this is a cliche because I've heard it so long in my career, but I have to understand not everyone has my lens. Um, but people don't work for companies, they work for managers. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. So if you have people leave because they have a, sh- a bad manager, oh, I just edited myself. <laughs> but if they have a bad manager and they leave, obviously that's impactful. And if that was a good employee, too bad, so sad. And you're looking at that cost. But to your point, Brian, what you said is if they are a good manager and a good manager leaves, Um, there's a lot of unknowns and fear. You've taken away some of the security of the employees that reported to that manager of, they don't know what they're going to get. They don't know if the next person is equally going to be a good leader or if they're going to be somebody, you know, that's promoted in the company or the CEO's nephew, like you just never know. So it is very common that there's fallout and attrition after, after a key employee leaves for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've left for bad managers. 100% easy. I've like also that. followed good
2: managers. I've let managers recruit me with just a phone call
0: and a question. Yeah. Um, I but before we do, before we get too far away for this, I want to talk about uh, the open office environment uh, again, just because we mentioned it with um, the computer programmers or the the IT support staff that was in yeah. that space. Is that correct? Um, so, you know, in Brian and my world, we see open office environments being utilized almost exclusively. Like it's a ton, but I also see articles shared on LinkedIn from interior designers uh, about how the open office concept has failed us uh, as a workforce. Um, what impacts like positive and negative do you see with this office design style? What what generation generationally, what do people want? Go.
2: Okay, so I'm not gonna say that you softballed me that question, but thank you for setting me up for my next soapbox. <laughs> 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 um, This is why, so this is what human experience is. You know, I'd mentioned like we live in a very personalized world. I can call up a a complete stranger to go pick up food on my behalf and bring it to my door and have my needs met in a very, very personal way. But we don't really approach the workplace that way most of the time. So if you're looking at, as a company, making these decisions, usually you're looking at it like, the facility is the organism and instead of looking at the pockets of the organism like breaking it apart by the lungs and the kidneys and whatever you know you have all of these parts they they treat it like one whole amoeba organism and build it in a way that that has sameness for everyone but they're not taking into consideration exactly what you just said, which is what you pitched over to me so delicately. People want to have that environment personalized to their needs and wants. So for someone like me, there are times in the day that I absolutely thrive and want to be around other people. As a matter of fact, I just joined a stupid shared workspace and pay way too much money for it because my home environment doesn't stimulate me the same way as hearing other people work. I'm not working with them, I have nothing to do with them, but there is an energy around being other individuals that are also doing similar activities that you don't necessarily have to be involved in. Um, So taking that into consideration, but also like this one size fits all approach of, well, we're gonna have open floor plan and we're gonna make everybody have these, you know, short cubicle spaces and nobody's gonna have privacy and nobody's gonna have offices and we're all the same. I'd mentioned my company is building our office and we have had a sampling of employees, primarily boomers and some Gen Xers that have come back and said, if I don't have an office where I can shut a physical door to have a private conversation, I am out. I will not work here anymore. Mm. But then equally we've had some employees that are like, I talked to my team. Every minute of the day, like we are constantly collaborating, we are constantly working together and discussing what email just came in, what report are we working on, what, you know, like the the need that that particular team has isn't even necessarily generation, uh, generational, but it's related to the nature of their work. So you can't just look at workspace through one lens of, well, let's build it for each generation or let's build it for our industry you have so many different needs within a company and you have to look at it through the lens of all, which honestly the best way to do this is through focus groups and design thinking and just gather feedback and build empathy for your end users, which in this case are your employees. How are you building it through the lens of meeting their needs to be able to liberate them to do the best work they can? Because if the workspace becomes an obstacle to that, you've just done yourself a disservice of investing who knows how many millions of dollars into this beautiful space that is not fully functional.
1: It's interesting you say that because I hear a lot of times where, you know, a customer sees someone else's space and they'll go to a design firm and say, I want that. Right. Or they'll see a picture. <laughs> and you're like, I want that. And, and it's, you know, I guess I've got a follow-up question to that in the sense that, you know, if if you had any advice for, an architect or designer who is, uh, you know, engaging with a client, right. Who's building a space. How do you one, I guess, make sure that they're doing that type of engagement. Like you, like you gave some examples of, of how to do that. But I mean, any suggestions for how to kind of engage with the customers beyond their point of contact to make sure that they're, building the right space, not just what the customer thinks they want.
2: Okay. Again, I don't know if you guys like talked behind the scenes to just like give me the best questions possible, but We're just that good. We're just
1: honest. I know you are. You really
2: are. Um, Design thinking, design thinking is the way to do this. And what's funny is like design thinking originally started more in the tech space and engineering, But the adaptation of it, just like Six Sigma and some of the things that have been around that you can adopt even in your personal life, um, strategic planning, another great example, design thinking is so applicable to exactly what you just said because the first and second stages, you're not designing anything. You're not going in with a proposal because if you do that, you're going in with a solution of what you think they, I I should actually emphasize, what you think they said rather than why they want it. So if you have a client that comes to you and says, I want this space, they take a picture and send it to you. Obviously the first thing you should ask is what is it in this space that attracts you to it? What do you like about it? Why do you like it? If it's the, if it's how it was designed, like they like where that plant is or the furniture is modern. Those are like, I mean, that's, that's like skin level stuff. That's, those are easy, easy changes that are not going to be expensive to alter. But if, it's, if you ask enough questions, um, root cause analysis, right? Like it takes six whys to get to a root cause of a problem. So if you continue to ask why, you'll eventually get to what's the emotion that they're trying to connect to here. Um, I think one of the, the great values that I've recognized in both architects and designers is they're usually very good at emitting emotion through design. So if you can ask these questions to better clarify, do they want Warmness, do they want it to feel comfortable? Are they want it to feel energized? Do they want it? Do they want people to feel? um, Not uncomfortable, but do they want them to walk in and feel like You know, there's there's a buzz here Then you can design for that you can do Stand-up pods you can have, you know, obviously a coffee bar But you the the music that you choose to play if you have overhead speakers like those type of things are all going to contribute to the feeling and emotion that you want people to have in certain spaces, but also taking into consideration a picture of a design space that somebody liked that they saw at some vendor building is one part of that overall space concept. And so you can't just take that again, one size all approach of we're gonna make our lobby look the same as our customer service department. Those are gonna look very, very different because they have different needs. Um, so if, uh, you know, the design thinking, if, if your listeners or you guys are not necessarily in tune with that, it's really easy to see it. It's got six steps that you can even just look at them without definition and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But the application and practice of it is very difficult. Um, partly because when you're trying to create need statements, what tends to happen is people immediately go to a what instead of a why. And if you want to get true adoption in anything, you have to connect to somebody's true motivation instead of focusing on the external ask. Um, we do this in HR all the time too, where we send out our surveys and where do you guys wanna have the next company party and what benefits do you wish we offered? But we're not asking the deeper questions of why are those important to you? And until we understand why those are important to someone, you know, for example, let's say the CEO finds a space, they really love it because it feels very warm and inviting. Okay, well, next question, why is that important to you? Why do you want this to feel warm and inviting? Well, because I want my customers to feel like they can trust us. Okay, we're getting closer. Why do they need to trust you? Obviously, I mean, that's a surface level question, but you ask enough and you'll eventually get to the CEO cares about that because for them in their background, that was when they felt most safe and secure. And those are the people that they choose to do business with. And they want people coming into their environment to feel that same sense of, whether it's nostalgia or family or whatever, you get to those emotions, um, you're going to have evangelists, not just with your brand and your company and getting referrals, but you've designed a space that creates true human impact.
1: Well, and I, I live my life around the why, you know, I think, um, you know, it, it's something that we ignore way too much and we do focus on the what, uh, but I, I love that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, are you, are you down from your soapbox?
2: Um, you want to yeah, stay I mean, up I'm, there. I'm, I'm like, I want yeah. you
1: to stay up there. I want you to,
2: I've sat on the edge. I end. want <laughs> you
1: to stay up there because it's, it's interesting because we've talked about building the space, right. And, and how we can maybe improve that for our current employees. Right. Another topic we wanted to talk about was how the space can impact recruiting, because that's obviously another, uh, you know, function of HR, is you know attracting new talent, attracting people to fill positions that may be tough to fill, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you're looking at the space, I mean what experiences have you had, both positive and negative, um, that, you know, the space had an impact on the recruiting process?
2: Well, I worked for a recruiting agency for about four years. Um, and that's all I did for a living was place hr professionals in the state of utah um and you know it's really it's kind of fun because you get to do you, you are essentially a salesperson but you're also responsible for finding this connection of talent that is going to be the optimized fit for their career where they're at what they're looking to get out of it as well as the needs of the company um not that you can't do that in corporate recruiting but there's something about agency recruiting you just have this like deeper sense of urgency and uh your reputation's on the line you know i mean it's uh, you eat what you kill in, in that scenario. So it's very critical to get it right. And in my experience, I've been more invested in those positions than in when I've done corporate recruiting. So perfect example of this, I had a client once that was a nonprofit. Um, they needed an HR director, which was a very, very essential role for them. They were going through a rebrand. And this is also a very, um, impassioned nonprofit that has to do with, uh, with the youth. So the first time, you know, I talked to them and got more information about the job, what they were looking for, their requirements, salary, all of that. that is a pretty low salary. But that's the thing about nonprofit is you find the connection to the cause and then you upsell, you know, like what they're going to get out of it is <laughs> on a soulful level instead of a financial level. Um, so as I started sending candidates over there, uh, I would always follow up, you know, how did the interview go? And the candidates would tell me the interview went really well but their tone and their pitch would always go up when I asked them if they wanted to move forward. And it was sort of this, like, we could, I could not put a finger on, okay, something's wrong here. Like, I don't know what's happening, but these candidates are telling me that they were respected, it was polite, the interview went great, the position was a good fit for where they were in their career but they didn't want to move forward. And I was getting so confused because I'm like, I don't know what's missing here. Like I'm thinking sexual harassment, worst case scenario, the CFO is going crazy and playing footsie under the table. Like, I don't know, but they're not comfortable telling me. So finally I had this candidate after the fourth time this happened. um, I knew her a little bit more personally. And so I was like, level with me here. Like, what is the deal? Why you're the fourth candidate I've sent over there that doesn't want to move forward. Why is that? And she said, well, frankly, the space was bad. And I hadn't been there personally. Yet. <laughs> so I was like, well, tell me more. Like, what do you mean? And so she tells me that there's tiles in the ceiling that have obviously been leaking water. Some of them are even removed. And there's like wires exposed up above uh, the, the um not equipment but the furniture that's in there is like second second hand so it's you know it's been handed down and it was free and so none of it matches and some of it has tears in it and the chairs are all stained and uncomfortable and she's just rattling off this whole image for me of what it's like physically going to this location Um, and what i found interesting was when i went back to the other candidates and i said did the, did the work environment bother you at all, you know, when you went in and looked at it? And one of them said, yeah, absolutely. I just, you know, I, 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 I'm not comfortable in there. For all I know, there's asbestos or something. But the other two, this was what was the bigger finding for me. They were like, you know, I couldn't figure out what it was. It was just a feeling. I couldn't say that that's what it was. But now that you bring it up, yeah, I think that did impact my comfort level of being there. Um, but they didn't even recognize it on their own. So I call up the CFO, who's my hiring manager, and I go out there and talk to him. And I see the space for myself, and I'm like, "Oh man, this is bad. <laughs> this is bad." So we have we have this really candid conversation, and he starts telling me about just the position that they're in, and you know they're they're on a fundraising gig, and they're kind of turning a corner. They've got a new CEO and leadership team, um, which is why they're in this space. It's a temporary place for them to be as they're trying to get back on their feet. Um, and they also chose this space to be able to hire this person so they could invest more in the salary of the individual, allowing them a better opportunity to get better talent, knowing that the space was temporary. So now I'm equipped with all of this information. I personally have seen this space. And now I can go back and I can prepare candidates before I send them over. So when I call them up and I tell them about the job and I get them all excited about the cause and the values and everything, um, I can set the expectation like, look, here's where they're at. they're investing in this position. I know it's still low for the salary range for for the role itself, but they want to be able to bring you in as high as they can. So they're in a temporary space that is not flashy. It's not showy. It's not going to be a place where you have the beautiful glass and the view of the mountains, but this is a position that's for a cause. And if you're looking for more than just being able to go to work, check a box and manage benefits and process payroll every day, this might be a good fit for you immediately, the response I was getting from these candidates after they would go to their interviews was, I don't, I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but I'm going to say it was 200% better. I mean, they they were sharing emotional connections that they were having to the cause, to the vision. None of them were talking about the office environment. None of them brought it up from that day forward because they knew what it was like going into it. And they were more focused on connecting to the cause of the organization um, and also had a clear path and felt comfortable asking questions about the environment. You know, I know this is a temporary space, but what are you looking for? Where are we planning to move? Um, and taking that into consideration when they were gonna be taking the job, right? Um, the person that ended up accepting the position, you know, we went we went through this process for a couple of months, and the person that did end up saying yes has a family member that worked in commercial real estate and was able to work out a deal where they got just a steal um, on this beautiful space that had you know beautiful views of the mountains out here in Utah, um, for less than what they were paying, at this absolute dive bomb. Um, so you know, I think.
1: So you set the bar really low, is what you're saying.
2: Exactly
1: right. Really that low. No that's no that. That's yeah. that old adage: uh, under promise, over deliver. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's right. A story of my life.
1: That's.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just ask my husband.
1: Right there with you. Oh man, I will. I'm not gonna touch that with a 10 foot pole. Not not gonna go
2: there.
0: Alisa, <laughs> what percentage uh, of people do you feel like have the insight and the like the knowledge to do what you just did in that scenario?
2: Well, I can't take the credit for it because, like I said, I mean, I wish I wish that that was just my intuition and I figured it out on my own. But it was really my friend that went in for her interview that shared her insights with me to give me the visibility. My own light bulb to go off. Now, ha, if I were to go in myself and see that, possibly, you know, I, I may have been more prepared because I would have been a little surprised. Um, but the but that's interesting too is when you work as a corporate recruiter, or corporate HR, or even just as an employee that goes in over and over. Um, I think we talked about this last time we engaged. But I love I'm Trainwreck TV all the way. Hoarders is one of my favorite shows because it gets into The mental psychology of how people can get to a place where they just don't see and hear uh, the distractions that are happening in their life because it's such a part of their environment.
0: Elisa, I saw something, maybe it was a post you shared on LinkedIn, maybe it was a conversation that we had previously. Uh, You had mentioned you had a terrific stat on um, HR creating value and there was something about uh, it takes a hundred dollars of new profit to cover $1 saved from the bottom line. Is, is Am I right with that? And can you expand on that?
2: Yeah, so I learned this from a CFO that I worked with who um, actually had a very contentious relationship with, but it was, it was out of admiration and respect. Like we would go head to head, but he is brilliant. He's one of the smartest financially minded people that I've known and we've stayed in touch throughout both of our careers. Uh, but we were in an executive meeting once and discussing, you know, where we were going to invest certain budget dollars. And he made the astute observation that it is magnanimously more impactful to cut from existing expenses than it is to expect your sales team to go out and create new revenue. Um, so that was that was the dollar amount that he gave was basically a one to one hundred ratio. If you can cut one dollar from your bottom line spend, it's the equivalent of going out and earning $100 of new business. So you can either hire more staff, hire more salespeople, and try to grow your business that way, or you can really focus and pay attention to your operational efficiencies to make sure that you are executing at the least common uh, denominator of expenses to be able to maximize your investment and capital that you've already put into the business.
1: Lean and mean.
2: Lean and mean, and green. I think yeah I in the rain. here here is there a machine in there somewhere
1: eh. i don't know <laughs> i don't know i don't know i'm just making this up as i
0: go aren't we all i like it speaking yeah. of making
2: things COVID, up am i right ding ding
0: ding ding ding. guess what time it is oh, fort, no. what time is it tell me
1: it's uh it's the fast <laughs> it's five. time
0: for the fast five all right eliza here's what i am going to wrap. Did you just tell me eliza again dan 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 yes. dan you call me Eliza. Oh, yeah. Mm, I'm so, I'm sorry. I was in a. I was in a. Um, I was in a. I was the lead in My Fair Lady once. I'm a and I'm a stage and film actor, and uh, I was the main character. And uh, the set the female lead was named Eliza. So every time I see your name, I just say Eliza. So I apologize dearly.
2: Hey, it. if we were in Spain, you would be pronouncing it. Correctly. The rain in Spain
0: so. in I like
1: that away. he just made up some story about.
2: No, that's true. I was in the theater. Yeah. That, is,
0: that, is, that is a true fact, Hotfoot. Um, let's get it on. It's time for the Fast Five. Elisa, this is how this is going to work. Uh, I'm going to rapid fire at you. Five random questions that have nothing to do with anything we've talked about so far. But fun. And they humanize you. And it shows you that, hey, you have a soft side, too. Because you've been real tough the entire, the, the, the entire the entire conversation. That's obviously a joke. She scares yeah, me friends. to be quite honest. You're
2: gonna her. you're gonna get your slingshot and throw tomatoes up at me on my soapbox. I got it. I'm ready. <laughs>
0: okay. Are you kick it out from under? <laughs> like it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question number one: What's your favorite candy?
2: Uh, anything gummy that sticks to my teeth and makes my dentist really profitable. Mm,
0: yeah, I'm a sour patch kid man myself. Uh, number two: What is your first memory in life?
2: Um, I'm sitting on the lap of, I think it's my dad, at church right after sacrament meeting, and these two old ladies are walking out, and I see them hunched over with, like, probably scoliosis, and I thought that you shrunk down as you aged, like Benjamin Button. Like, I was probably two or three years old, and I just remember having that memory of thinking, like, oh, I just, I guess I just turn back into a baby when I get old. That's cool. (laughs) Uh, I love that. That's cool.
1: I think that happens in your
0: thirties yeah. actually. When you turn
2: back you. <laughs> That's true. I'm experiencing that right yeah. now. <laughs> That's why I wear a cowboy. Motorcycle.
0: Ask my wife. I can't afford yeah. to get any shorter. That's what happened. Um, question number three in your free time, where is your favorite place to be?
2: Oh, mountains. 100% mm. mountains.
0: Easy. Yeah. Next. Uh, number four. What is your nickname?
2: Uh, so the GPG or PG 13 version. Let's do both,
0: and we'll edit out which I'm I don't gonna, have a. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs>
2: <laughs> my mom calls me Lise, mm-hmm. uh which my husband does as well. My high school friends called me Lisi Bug, and my post-graduation roommate called me Big Easy. <laughs> I like it because you're from Louisiana.
0: I was
1: wondering when we were going to get to PG-13. <laughs>
2: I'll let you interpret what that meant.
0: But <laughs> Question five, what is the best advice you've ever received?
2: Oh, that's not a fast question. Sure it is. I got to think about I, that I one. said it fast. Hmm. Assume positive intent.
1: Love it assume positive intent,
2: process it. What a great, yeah.
1: What a great way to, to live. I always, I always tell people if I say something bad to you or mean to you, just assume I meant it in the best way possible. That's not where I
2: thought you were going with that.
1: (laughs) That's just assume that I meant it in the most positive way possible, you know?
2: That's the thing that I think is hard about the day and age that we live and the polarized views on everything. I mean, down to like laundry detergent these days, most people like in general do not mean anything malicious by what they do or say. And I think that we're all pretty self-absorbed and don't understand the impact that we have on others sometimes. But if you can come at it through taking ownership of your own victimhood to recognize that most people are not out to get you. Most people are not trying to offend you or make your life miserable with the small microscopic percentage of people that do. Um, if nothing else, it gives you an opportunity to take that power and control back of your emotions instead of continuing the cycle of victimhood.
1: That's great advice. That's great. advice. Thank you. I, I feel like, uh, Dan, you and I, um, are better people having, had this podcast today.
2: Yeah, Wow. I agree. Wow. I'm trying to be yeah.
1: serious. I'm trying to be serious. No, I, I was going to say, it. like,
2: see, HR can I, be, if done. I right. feel
1: like I need to call our HR department and say thank you.
2: Oh. <gasps> okay, now you're going to make me cry. Like, that's, you just pulled my heartstrings. If everybody that's listening to this podcast right now can just send a quick email to their HR person and say, hey, your life's hard. And I just want you to know that I appreciate the work that you do for us. Um, Especially if,
1: right yep. <laughs> right Especially if it's right before a compensation review Right before Especially if it's right before a compensation review
2: It's kind of like I don't know if you guys watched the Bill and Ted movies And the new one that came out But um, we we're big fans in our house So we watched it And it's kind of like That email might be the song that was written To unite the world Like it might be the email to unite the world You never know
1: I love it you never know. This podcast
2: yeah. could
0: be the podcast <gasps> recorded that could unite the world.
2: Wow, wow, Elisa,
0: thank thank you for joining us today. You offered a lot of perspective uh, in the business of human resources, uh, and really for me, particularly on facets I've never thought about. Um, so when I'm the CEO of Milliken and Company, I'm going to hire you. Uh, stamp, stamp <sighs> that, underline it twice, uh, bold statements happening over here, Hotfoot.
2: Well, hey, I don't work for companies, I work for people. So you make that phone call.
0: That hey, Hotfoot, hotfoot of Millican, uh, will you be what what position are you gonna have in my cabinet?
1: I I mean honestly, I'm kind of disappointed because I actually have now been inspired. I was gonna do HR and be the person over the people, but now that you've given that to someone else. I don't know what I'm well, going to make-
2: Hey, I'll make you a deal. I'll be the shaman and you can be the executor. So Padawan, Jedi, all that. <laughs>
1: executor. <laughs> like, I know we have
2: to be careful using that term in HR because. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: That's awesome. Uh, to our valued listeners, if you see a higher value in human resources, or if Elisa has ideas that can make your company better, send our podcast to your colleagues and spur a discussion. You can be the catalyst that changes your people, your company, and your industry. Being well, according to Dan O'Brien, is about thinking and acting differently. So, from the entire cast and crew at Being Well, I'm Dan Shuffleton.
1: And I'm apparently Hotfoot Thompson.
0: <laughs> and we wish you a wonderful day and a fantastic tomorrow.